Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McInroy. This is Steve Walsh. Hello. And this week we visited the Imperial War Museum. You can find all of our episodes on southlondonhardcore.com and on iTunes. Tweet us at SLHC and we're on facebook.com slash southlondonhardcore. The Imperial War Museum now has branches all over the country. Duxford, uh, Manchester, on a boat, Steve, HMS Belfast. But the main one we think of is the one in St George's Fields. Uh, we're not really called that anymore, sort of between Elephant, Lambeth North, St George's Circus that way. And of course it started in South London, further back than that. Yeah, it's founded in 1917 during the First World War, which seemed really odd to me during a global conflict to sort of go, let's make sure we've got a museum ready to go. Just obviously guaranteeing that they're going to win. We'll want to record this afterwards. One day this war will be over. Yeah. And we'll open a museum. Opens in 1920, eventually, at the Crystal Palace, which at that point is still at the top of Sydenham Hill. Yeah, right. So when did it burn down? Well, I think it moved before the fire. It moves in 1924 to South Kensington. Yeah, it was not that long, it was only there for four years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But then in 1936, moves back south of the river to the location that we know now in Southwark. Yeah, there there are far too many museums in South Kensington as it is. There's no need to be putting more and more there. It finds a home, like you say, in Southwark, in a fascinating looking building. A building with a fascinating history as well. Yeah, best known previously as the location of Bethlehem Hospital, or Bedlam, as it was more popular. So is it Bethlehem? Because there's an E missing, isn't there, for Bethlehem? Is it Bethlehem? Yeah. Oh, right, I always say Bethlehem. It's got to be linked, isn't it? <laughs> Pure coincidence. Bethlehem was originally in Bishopsgate, and then moved to Moorfield, and then to St George's Fields, which is now the Imperial War Museum. And then ended up in West Wickham in the borough of Bromley. Yeah, it's in Shirley. It's an incredible building, you know, the dome on top. But it's the addition of the cannons at the front, isn't it? That well, the, the moving of the Imperial War Museum saves the building. The original plan was to demolish the building entirely and convert all of the space around it, including the building, into a park. And there is a park around it now. But yeah, it was it was due to be all park space. So the arrival of the Imperial War Museum saves this magnificent structure and then as you say is enhanced by the iconic guns at the front which you know is such a vivid memory from my childhood just seeing these giant cannons as you walk through the gates. Yeah same here it really announces it doesn't it. It's the second military museum we've been to on the show back in if my memory serves me well episode 16 maybe we went to Woolwich Woolwich Arsenal the um the museum's called something like Firepower, isn't it? Yeah, Firepower, yeah. And they've got a load of cannons. They've almost overdone it. The trouble is they're the tainted is, by the shadow of Arsenal Football Club, aren't they? But also, very specifically, the Museum of Woolwich is a history of artillery. Yeah, right. But like with the Imperial War Museum, just having the two guns almost yeah. says a lot more, doesn't it? Well, they had more artillery pieces. But I was reading about, I mean, obviously it arrives there in 1936 just in time. For the second world war to start, it's good, good time and get settled just in time for another major global conflict. And during the Second World War, they return 18 pieces of artillery 
back to the army from the Imperial War Museum. Yeah, that's extraordinary, isn't it? And then... And they refused the piece as well, didn't they? They refused one piece that was, was manned by... And then we saw that gun today, actually. It was manned by, I think, a 14, 15-year-old boy seaman, they called him, um, who won the Victoria Cross. Was that the HMS Lance guy? think so I can't remember I didn't make a name just that that was the piece of artillery they refused to give up they also sort of it seems like they sort of raid the stores at the Imperial War Museum and hand out trench clubs from the First World War to members of the Home Guard because at this point at sort of 1940 1941 people were pretty much convinced and it's something that we referenced uh, with PG Woodhouse in a previous episode at this point people are convinced that there's a good chance that the Allies are going to lose the war and that there's going to be a German invasion. So suddenly anything that can be turned into a weapon or any weapons that are held in storage anyway are just deployed to volunteers to repel the invasion that they're expecting. The guns out there at the moment are 15 inch, 1967. They've been there since. Off two ships, HMS Resolution and HMS Ramalies. I'm a big fan of ship names. Resolution's great, isn't it? Resolution's brilliant, yeah. But also just things like the Dreadnought class of battleship. Dreadnought, a wonderful name for a class of battleship. It did come under attack in the Blitz, didn't it? Yeah, hit by a bomb. And then almost bombed again, Steve, 30 years later. 50 years later. Oh, the IRA? Yeah. Yeah, a couple of incendiary devices left in the building, but found by, I think, a member of staff or a member of the public alert of staff, and they just douse it. There's um, uh, an attack of sorts in between as well in 1968 when Timothy Daly, uh, an arsonist, tries to burn the place down because he thinks it's promoting militarism to children. Yeah, it causes 200 grand worth of damage plus uh, numerous irreplaceable documents and stuff uh, destroyed. What do you think about his stance, Steve? I didn't, I didn't go to Imperial War Museum in 1968, but you would imagine... No, were you uh, busy? Yes. <laughs> Listen, I had children to raise. <laughs> I thought it was very interesting. I went to the museum today with that in mind about how it's curated and how it's presented. I think there's a, a parallel that I can make from my own experience and knowledge in terms of comics, where there was from the end of the Second World War, and even before that, obviously, the Imperial forces and whatnot, there was a huge trend in comics to use them as a form of propaganda, where it's very simplistically presented in terms of who's right and who's wrong, and it tends to be that the British, or at least white people, are right, and anyone foreign or anyone from a different race is probably the enemy and probably barbaric and deserving to be killed and for me as a kid you know I read a lot of traditional style war comics where it was very hammy and heavy handed and unbalanced in terms of the representations but I did also read um, a massive important comic called Charlie's War which was written by Pat Mills and drawn by Joel Colquhoun and they had an exhibition of the artwork there at the Imperial War Museum a couple of years back but it was, it was a, a, a brilliant portrayal of the trenches of the First World War. But it's horrible. Just scenes of absolute terror and suffering 
and people just left in bits on the battlefield. I mean, you read it as a kid, and it is, it's not what you read in another walk race, it's also not what you've been told in school, particularly. There's still, and I think, you know, that, that episode of Blackadder, or that series of Blackadder, was particularly important as well in sort of skewing how people see the war. But also, you know, with, with Charlie's War, it was very important because it came out at a time when Thatcher was freshly installed as Prime Minister, so there's a particularly nasty streak to British nationalism at the time. And it's coming out and being published at the time of the Falklands conflict, where, you know, jingoism of the kind hasn't been seen since the end of the Second World War. So it's, it's, it's making an important point at an important time when the mainstream media are desperate to present the British Army as liberators and heroes, even when things like the Belgrano's being sunk and gotcha. You know, there was a very nasty time in terms of militarism and jingoism. So reading Charlie's War, you know, at that point I'm sort of seven, eight years old. But I think it was, it was important to sort of realise even then that war wasn't some sort of joke or game. It was a horrible, horrible thing. Moving into the museum, maybe, you know, listeners can follow us on a little walk. Maybe you load this onto your iPod when you get to the museum. Someone offers you an official tour audio player. No, thank you. I've got Jack and Steve and me here, Rolls. So you, the first place we went to was World War One. Originally, the museum was... The plan was that it would represent wars from World War One and the Empire, but I think they've since just kind of they've gone to World War One basically as a starting point. And Again, as a kid, I do remember sort of pre World War One conflicts being heavily represented, and a lot of colonial and imperial ephemera and uniforms and whatnot around, which seems to have been largely removed now. You made the point, Steve, in that first room that they had incorporated black people and other people of colour. Very early on. Like yeah. Three pictures, the first three pictures you see, all contain people of colour, which is entirely representative of the efforts made by Imperial forces during the wars, but not my memory of the building going as a child. I, don't, I think that you know they've, they've recurated a yeah, lot right. of the rooms, which is you know reasonable in how history works. You present new information and you're determined to tell the best version of the truth that you have. I was a bit worried in that first room because there's a lovely sort of wooden panelling thing on the wall and some interesting display things. But then just in the corner, there's this odd little map with a sort of groove cut into it for a boat to move along. And it, there's no real purpose to it. And it sort of spins, you had a couple of goes, you're sort of spinning it around. I don't know what that was for. Yeah, this is this is the thing with museums, isn't it, that are aimed partly at children. You go in there concerned that they're going to be dumbing it down and you're going to be moving battleships up and down, you know, made out of plastic. Do you think that's what it's for, just for a toddler to go past and just sort of... Yeah, like I think there's an element of that. Right. But you do get a feeling in that first room of what the museum's all about, don't you? Yeah, yeah. You know, you go in, there's like, there's like interactive, you know... It's resolutely uh, modern, isn't it? There's a lot of projection, there's a lot of animation, which, you know, has its place and makes it very dynamic and stops it being, you know, the day, you know, as you say, particularly, you know, a lot of school parties going, it's important for kids to to go to places like this and learn about things like this. And you can't just have it be 
a fusty grey place that's purely about information. There has to be an element of dynamism to it. But I was a bit concerned that the pendulum has swung a little too far, just based based on that first room. Well, what did you think about the first World War exhibition? I thought it was pretty strong, actually. I liked. I thought it was it was very good in terms of the amount of different areas it covered within that, in terms of propaganda and the various um, methods of warfare, a lot of different bits of um, ephemera and personal items. It felt very sort of vivid and well presented. Yeah, there's a great bit where you end up in some sort of mock trenches, and I mean it's pretty straightforward. It's only a bit of uh, plastic up and down the wall, but they've projected some soldiers with helmets and guns behind you and it, like you're looking round to see where these silhouettes are coming from I thought that was very effective yeah and there as you go around the corner there you have the thing of the tank sort of almost collapsing down yeah, on top right, of right, you right. and a plane sort of almost sort of buzzing a couple of feet over your head so I think that was quite effective in trying to evoke you know a feeling of that experience yeah, there's a sea mine there as well, which was kind of a highlight of the museum, I thought. It was kind of terrifying, wasn't it, really? It was just a kind of, uh, I don't know, I guess it was like a three-foot egg, wasn't it? With like kind of a couple of spikes that if, you know, it floated just under the surface. And if you ship it, it blew up. And But just as I thought it was a piece of the design, it was like, it felt very specifically like industrialised horror. It was very sort of definitely... Made the, the 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 shade of the paint, everything about it, just had a, a slightly sickly feel to it for me. In the main hall, it's sort of iconic, really, isn't it? When I think of the Imperial War Museum, you think of those guns and the dome, but then it is the Spitfire and the other planes hanging off the ceiling. That are, it's a tremendous to see as a kid, and, and that's one of jeeps parked all around. Yeah, right. I mean, that's one of the advantages of the Science Museum as well. I think when you walk through that first bit, and it's just a load of like. Massive engines. Yeah, just everywhere, you know, just, just like a mini hanging out the ceiling. You know, the Spitfire, that's a highlight, isn't it? But there was a, there's a kind of fairly new thing where it's this sort of crushed, rusted car from Baghdad. And interestingly, like my first thought was, oh, that's, this is quite uh, bold. You know, you've got this kind of unjust war that Britain's involved in and you're showing like the consequences of it. But then you go and look at the plaque and it's like, this uh, damaged car was caused by a suicide bomber. You know, it's propaganda, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that, that's, that is a part of the museum. Even in that First World War room, a couple of bits were said, most people were behind the, the uh, British Empire. And there was a lot of, a lot of bits where, you, you know, they were definitely swaying opinion. There's an assumption going in that you're, you, you're firmly behind the idea of an empire war as a way to establish and maintain that empire. It, it tells, and you know, there's a clear name, it tells one side of the story, doesn't it? Yeah. And it, it seems like, they, as you say, things like that, that Karek almost feels like they're going to try and tell you the other side of the story, but it turns out it's still their side of the story. Up one floor to the Second World War, which was a lot smaller than the First World War, wasn't it? I mean, the I Second World was... War is such a big focus... For Britain, in terms of so many things culturally, you know, in terms of the way history is taught in schools, the world, the world wars are just disproportionately. Well, I know it's a huge event, and I want to sound silly, but a disproportionately large. Oh, yeah. Considering that you've got the whole of human history to yeah. be teaching, 
And see, I was a little bit surprised that how little... Well, there were a couple of other things we'll get to that are Second World War, mm. but the kind of home front stuff was fairly brief, wasn't it? And they used to have the Blitz experience there, yes. which is now gone, I guess. That's... Yeah, I think it's, as I say, part of the recuration is the fact that they're sort of realising that they possibly overcompensated for a long time by having a Blitz experience. But it does feel... You know, there was a bit where we were walking around the Second World War bit, and you were like, where's the Second World War bit? And I was like, this is it. Because it doesn't, if you look at how the first world was represented and the range of materials and the range of ways the information is presented, for me, the second world war bit was closer to the atrium, where it's like vehicles. Yeah. Here's this plane, here's this truck, here's this. And I was like, yeah, this, I don't know. I mean, obviously, vehicles had advanced from the first world war, but if, if you think that the big story of the second world war was vehicles, then, and even things like, you know, there's a section on the bomb, generally, as an idea. But it seems just badly placed, put together and misfocused. Yeah, the whole kind of Cold War, I suppose, was it really? Cold War section was next to it, no? Yeah, it, that's the thing. It's it was unclear. Was I mean, it was it just like bombs thing? through the years. Almost. But even then, you sort of go through the bits with the bombs and then suddenly there's a bit where... There's a mural of Saddam Hussein. Yeah, and right. At the end of that, that room, he's not from the Second World War, is he? <laughs> at the end of that room, you've got the the witness box from the Lockerbie trial, and in the middle of all that, you've got some mad TV play on that's trying to sort of tell us something about war. What is it good for? I think was the message. Absolutely nothing. As you say, Steve, the real story of the Second World War is not there. But if you go up to the fourth floor, the Holocaust exhibition what you'd expect really isn't it it's horrifying but it seems just as a curatorial exercise much more complete than the rest of the second world war stuff yeah it is it is it's it's overly comprehensive if anything in that i'd agree that a museum about the war and the second world war should certainly have a massively comprehensive section on the holocaust because even if people didn't realise it at the start of the war, that's what it ended up being about mm. as a fight. It was about for civilization. It doesn't make that clear. It talks about... Oh, absolutely. But, you know, there's a danger that every war is presented. You see that in the first war. Every war is presented as a war for civilization. Everyone thinks that they're fighting... The, the, the Nazis thought they were fighting a war for civilization. That's the problem with war as a solution to what you think of as the problems of civilization. But for me, the, for it to be the Imperial War Museum, it's even an odd... It's hard not to talk about it in a way that seems awkward or inappropriate, but it felt like almost like an act of appropriation where they were sort of going, "This is what you know it, our imperial wars were always about," and I don't think it was. It just seemed odd to hand over a whole floor of a museum specifically designed to talk about the wars that involve the British Empire. I didn't feel that way. I can understand where you're coming from there, Steve, because it is all, all glory to Britannia, isn't it, throughout. But it did seem that it was just a gen to me. It would just be a genuine, you know, attempt to present the Holocaust, you know, just in all its horror. And uh... no, so I can't imagine a more complete display about the Holocaust. It goes so early into the origins of Hitler's rise to power. The, the acts against Jewish people within Germany before the war even starts, then the, the, the sort of industrialisation of genocide that is the, the, the final solution, the mechanics of it, that um, incredible um, 
layout of the grounds of Auschwitz, where it just presents it to you as, you know, this was an industrial program. This was how it was uh, presented to people and how they got on with it. So uh, I, I think as, as an exploration of the Holocaust, I think it was tremendous. It just seemed anomalous to me in that particular place. In a good way, though, I think. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't just want to hear about how, how Great Britain was in every conflict from, you know, the First World War to Iraq. You know, let's just show... It seems separate. I mean, but I guess, like you say, there was a bit of the end where it said, then here's some British troops liberating Auschwitz. On the second floor, it's the extreme opposite of that, isn't it? Secret War, which opens with a James, the James Bond theme, Brian Cox talking about MI6 and voiceover. And again, it felt like something from a cinema museum rather than a museum about the war. Just I felt just massively inappropriate to walk into a room set in a place about conflict and be confronted by iconic theme music and visuals from espionage films. And even when you sit down for their short film, they're like, this is what you know about, but the, the truth is even stranger than the fiction. You're like, that's your excuse to sort of mm. open with this and then you're going to skew it towards... And there is some fascinating stuff in there. They've got, you know, Enigma machines and, you know, it is a, a, a particularly interesting aspect of warfare and conflict in terms of the psychology of individuals who are involved in it um, we're, we're all a sucker for you know odd devices that yeah. spies will use suitcase transceiver that was a highlight of the whole thing I thought but again it just feels badly curated yeah. to feel the need to frame it within you can understand there is a uh, an iconic nature to these portrayals of spies but it didn't feel appropriate in a museum that's supposedly about warfare and on top of that, like James Bond, how many Bond films has he been involved in a war? Yeah. You know, it's not, I mean, I know these things are, not all these spies are just directly involved in conflicts, but it, that did seem to, once you got past, you know, the Daniel Craig poster, it did seem to be the conflict was, this is what people had in this war or that war, these devices or, you know, this, these forged documents and stuff. He's taking on voodoo witch doctors. They've never been a threat to our national security. <laughs> because of him. On the third floor, there's the art and photography galleries where you've got a load of uh, paintings. They've got You skim that largely. Yeah. There's nothing really that grabs you, is there? Well, I, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of painting as much as I've tried. And sort of Paul Nash, official war painter, is not going to be the place where I start, to be honest. But, I mean, there was some stuff in there that looked like it was of importance. You've also got Horrible Histories there, spies, uh, but we don't endorse Horrible Histories at all on this show. £6.20 to get in because the guy, Terry somewhere or other... Terry Deary. Terry Deary. Yeah, right, he hates libraries and free museums because he's a fascist. (laughs) (laughs) He might not be a fascist if you're listening, uh, Terry's lawyers. (laughs) Get a new name for your firm. That would be our first bit of advice. And secondly... no, um, It'd be absolutely rubbish anyway, wouldn't it? This is the thing, it's not for us, it's for kids. If there's any value in... But there isn't, is there? There's no educational value in a horrible issue thing about spies. If anything, it's just going to be that first 30 seconds of that room, writ large, across 10 rooms. Agent Cody Banks. Done in a a nice sort of cartoony style. Well done. The great thing is, you can kind of peer over at the... uh, You get a better view of the 
planes that are hanging up and stuff. But I think the use of space is tremendous. I think yeah, it's, it's very yeah. uh, dynamic as you sort of move around it, even the sort of staircases, because I think everything's centralised, everything's placed around things quite nicely, that you, you do always feel like... It, there's that bit where we walked through and there's these odd little bits tucked away into corners. Some corners left empty. That was another thing that was odd. And yeah. in one particular room, there was a bit where it's like open space to walk through either side of the displays. But on the back of the displays, there'll be things on the table, but nothing on the board mm. behind. And it just feels like, put something there. Yeah, yeah, because like all storage. these they've got tens of thousands yeah. of items that are never seen the light of day. But, I mean, I don't know how recently it reopened. But, I mean, don't reopen. Oh, yeah, June or July. Stuff. It's only, we haven't mentioned that yet, have we? It closed down, it reopened June or July. And to be fair, they've done a great job in terms of presenting as a museum. I've got issues with certain things mm. and how they're presented. But I think in terms of it as a, as a structure, it's uh, very well put together. I presume it's reopening is to do with the 100th anniversary of the First World War. Pure coincidence. <laughs> it is, though. Yeah. It is entirely that. Yeah. 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 I mean, how do you feel, Steve, about this whole thing? About the centenary of the First World War? Yeah, I mean, it, there is a, it is a problem that that they're celebrating the start of the war rather than the end, isn't it? I think celebrating is the wrong word. Exactly. I think, I, I think it's important. Um, I think it's an important opportunity to re-examine war as an idea. I did a story recently for an anthology called Two Arms, which is about the First World War. Where can people buy that from? They can get a copy in Gosh Comics. Can I just say, before you carry on, that it's really, really good... And there's particularly, like yours is good, Steve. Tim Hassan's great work on the uh, pencils. and But there's a couple, Owen Pomery, who I've mentioned loads of times on the show, but is is There's a reason we mentioned him a lot, isn't there? It's really, it's a highlight. And uh, Matthew Boyer, his his piece in it is tremendous as well. And there's loads of good stuff in there, but those two are my two favourites. You get it from Gosh. we'll, We'll retweet a link to where you can buy it online as well. But for me... You know, the, the point of that involves generally wasn't to celebrate the, the centenary of the First World War or even particularly to recognise it, but to, for me, it was the opportunity to explore the very idea of warfare. So the angle I took from the, the story was what sort of person enjoys a war? What sort of person. I'm not going to tell people the answer. No, yeah, and it's a very. I know the answer. It's a very hammy, clumsy, predictable answer, but I think you can extrapolate from that that, you know, war, we look at it now as this horrific thing but for a long time it was presented as this wonderful thing and there would have been psychopaths that went to war and went this is brilliant this is I have complete freedom to kill people this is a wonderful thing and and it's important I think to remember that's at the heart of it slaughter and, and chaos it's not this clean beautiful affair that you know war was traditionally presented as this thing of gentlemen and honour and whatnot, and that's that's my concern with things like the Imperial War Museum, where even if they're sort of attempting to present a balanced view, we're still talking about a place that's dedicated to the idea of conflict, and there's still an element of you know that whole room of people who won the Victoria Cross, which you know I can understand. Yeah, well, that takes us nicely into our final, um, the Lord Ashcroft Gallery. You know, don't like to talk about charity work, obviously. Um, where it's Extraordinary Heroes, it's called. Um, and it is a load of cabinets of, you know, mostly medals. And, I mean, there is a difference. People, if people listen to The Woodard Show, they'll remember that I was sort of taken by... They had a, a medal exhibition on at the time. And I was I was fascinated by it, you know, mostly from, like, a design point of view. 
um, for aesthetic stuff. But it did seem that at the Woolwich, um, at the firearm, what's it called? At firepower. At firepower, it was an aesthetic thing. Yeah, they gave you the story of what what each medal meant, but you know it was like look at the colours, the ribbon sort of thing, and look at the incredible design on this um, on this medal, and also what it represents. Whereas I almost said miniature heroes, extraordinary heroes leads with Lord Ashcroft has X amount of Victoria crosses, and it's like right, well, do I need to see more than one? You know, it was it was very much about the guys. Like this guy did this. And then, and these are his medals. This guy did this. These are like four out of five of the same medals. I mean, added to that, that the typeface they'd chosen most of the time was wildly inappropriate. A lot of design issues there. Yeah. I mean, there was, there's this odd thing where there's uh, sort of a lot of pine cabinets and it just seemed pine was a massively inappropriate material to use. <laughs> it, I mean, it just didn't. Show some respect. seemed massively incongruous. So I said to you, uh, it looks more like a branch of Cassar than it does anything to do with a war museum. As you say, the uh, ugly uh, handwritten typeface. But then... I thought it was, to be fair, I thought it was a decent typeface, but it was just, it was better off on the back of a catalogue or something. Yeah. And then, like, every so often, for no reason whatsoever, there's a cabinet that's got a lid on it. And then painted on a lid is a sort of clumsy bit of artwork related to the story, like the uh, dustman Victoria Cross, there's a dustbin lid, but it's all painted on. And you pick it up, and, it's on. and then it's the same display as everything else, with the medal and the photograph and a little bar of Goodfella. But just where they could find an angle, they're like, put a lid with a hinge on that. That will give it. Mm. I don't know what it's supposed to give. It. I don't understand the purpose. Yeah. Of that as a it got boring but. quite quickly. I thought that one. Yeah. Um, but as well, it was one of the one of the things that did kind of bring home the brutality a bit. Like with the Holocaust thing, is its own thing. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because the Holocaust thing is its own thing. You know, this is just a, these are hideous things that happened. And it does make you think of other things as much as... You, I know you're saying this is the whole point of it, but you do under, it does make you understand the necessity of war sometimes. You know, yes, it was not the reason, the, the whole reason why Britain got involved in the conflict, but the Nazis had to be stopped and the, just the Second World War, you know, it was honourable in, in ways people yeah, did inadvertently die. inadvertently it turned into a massively honourable conflict. But then you've got other, other things where, you know, there's people who are fighting in... I don't know the ins and outs of the conflicts, but, you know, fighting in, like, I don't know, India and stuff, and you're thinking, here's a knife. There was one bit where there's some huge knife with a sheath. You know, he took this from, from someone he killed. And, you know, just the brutality of it, the death and, you know, murder... Was was quite uncomfortable, man. I mean, in terms of the conflicts in India and uh, the East, you can take, a, I think, a good guide from when we went to the tower on top of Shewer's Hill. Seven Drew Castle. Yes, and Seven Drew Castle. The whole story they're telling in there about this pirate who's operating around the coast of India... And you're like, well, the the pirate that you're talking about is Indian. And the people he's fighting have come halfway across the world to try and take the land that he comes from. So when we're calling people pirates, we have to be very careful about... And that's my... When people talk about imperial wars, it, I instinctively... You know, and obviously uh, it's easy to look at the Second World War as not an imperial war, particularly. And... The, the First World War, the suffering that people undertook, that sort of transformed how we look at it. But as I say, when, when people talk to me about imperial wars, I do tend to get my hackles up a little bit going in. 
my take, and you know, a couple of years back, I took my nephews to the Imperial War Museum, and my nephew Kieran was terrified of the Blitz experience. Wasn't no, it? of the guns. Every time he saw guns, he was just sort of like really scared and I was so horrible but I was quite pleased I was like this is a good response look at the guns <laughs> but I, I was quite I was, I was happy that you know it's not a case it of should him. be yeah you, you should yeah. be going like piao piao yeah you should be like this is war is horrible Uncle Stephen yes yeah that's a good message to take from it and it's you know a sort of horrible thing to do and uh, the whole bit of it just didn't want to be in at all I didn't even bother taking him into anything with the Holocaust because oh no no too young to appreciate anything other mm. than just barbarism but um, yeah I don't know you know my, my version of what an Imperial War Museum would look like would be you know the same approach as the Holocaust just as you know, yes there's interesting social history around it and there's some interesting design in terms of posters and pamphlets and there are elements around it that have other uh, significance but for me what's at the core of it is so horrific Mm. You know, it's it's um, it's barbarism, isn't it? That we're sort of celebrating. It's the worst, the worst we've managed. When you look at other museums that are dedicated to science, science and music yeah, and arts, fans. That's the English. best of humanity, isn't it? That's <laughs> the fan museum. <laughs> the, the fan museum obviously is inherently better than the Imperial War Museum. No matter how much money you spend on it, no matter how much you curate it and what you present, how you present it. Inherently, the human desire to make fans is better than the human desire to, to kill one another. That's inarguable, isn't it? That's yeah. a t- terrible straw man argument. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's the, I think that's, that's my sort of conflict with it as, as a, a place to go. It's, it yeah, should be so entirely I unbearable. So I suppose I can't really... It's more, rather than saying, would you recommend it or not, it's, it goes beyond that, doesn't it? I think I, I, I would recommend it, but I think you have to sort of go there. I, I, w- I wouldn't suggest going there passively with children. I would suggest going there actively and being prepared to contextualise everything. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, we live in a country, or a city, I should say, because the one in the north ain't free, where you don't have to pay for museums. And you've really got to take advantage of that. But like you say, Steve, I think that's good advice. Activism... Not passivism. Not pacifism. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you're on the tour, you're probably pulling up to the Berlin, a section of the Berlin Wall outside, Steve. You know, turn your iPod off. Change your life. Do us a favour. Go to southlondonhardcore.com, click the Amazon link, sign up for an Amazon Prime free trial, and we can fund making the show. You know, we say this every week, but it really would do us a favour if you did... Also, do don't your... forget to do your shopping there. Yeah, well, Christmas, Christmas is, is coming. coming. All Amazon shopping through southlondonhardcore.com, please. South London Hardcore is part of the Holdfast Network. For more podcasts, visit holdfastnetwork.com or search for Holdfast Network in iTunes.